You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. What I'd like to do today is uh, do something just a little bit different on the topic of sex, is that I want us to look at the idol of sex But I want us to look at the idol of sex through the person of Jesus. See, sometimes when we approach the topic of sex, we weirdly go around Jesus and start talking about what's in, what's out, what's okay and what's not. And somehow, sometimes we miss the person of Jesus around the topic of sex. And so we kind of, we talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be, to quote salt and pepper. And we don't talk about sex through the person of Jesus. And so what I'd like to do is intentionally hold up Jesus as like a prism and, and intentionally look at different aspects of Jesus. And I want to turn the prism a few ways this morning while we look at the idol of sex. So the first turn of the prism today is I want us to consider that when Jesus speaks on the topic of sex, which he does, he does so as one who is fully God. It's an interesting place to start. We're talking about sex, but consider the story of Exodus chapter 2. Moses sees a burning bush up on the mountain. He notices that the bush doesn't burn up. He goes and approaches the burning bush, and God speaks to him through the bush, and he says, where you're standing, Moses, is holy ground. Take your sandals off, and he does. And he says, Moses, you're going to go into Egypt, and you're going to let My enslaved people go. You're going to go to the greatest empire in the world as a shepherd. And you're just going to go in there and you're going to let all my people go. And Moses says, I don't know how in the world that that's even possible. And they're going to ask me what your name is. The Egyptians are and your people are going to ask me what your name is. And what do I tell them? And God said to Moses, tell them, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So he gives Moses his name, and that's all that he gives Moses, that and a staff. He says, you just go to Egypt and you tell them I am, not I'm becoming, not I will be, but I am that I am. I have always been. I'm not growing or increasing. I am, and I have always been, and I am has sent me to to you, And that's what he does. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, let God's people go. I am has sent me. And you see in the book of Exodus how God shows up over and over again, proving to Pharaoh and all of God's people that he is the almighty, omniscient, all-powerful, uncreated God. As he sends plague upon plague and finally lets the people go, he parts the sea. Miracle after miracle, God shows up as the great I am. And I am is the word Yahweh. And that's what we sang that this morning. Yahweh. We love to say your name. And that's what they sung for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had festivals and feasts. And Yahweh. We know who God is. His name is Yahweh. And he is the almighty, all-powerful, uncreated God. And if you fast forward to John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who know very well God's name is Yahweh. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he'd see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jew said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, indeed. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
Now catch this. Before Abraham was, I am. And it says that they picked up stones to throw at him. And they picked up stones because they understood what he was saying. They weren't confused. They didn't draw him out. Jesus, are you saying that you are Yahweh? No, they picked up stones because they understood clearly what Jesus was saying. He said, I am the uncreated, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God who spoke the sea into existence and then split the sea with a stick. He said, that's who I am. I am Yahweh. And so when we approach this topic and all other topics that Jesus speaks about, we have to recognize that he is the authority on the topic because he created the topic. So five times in the Gospels, Jesus directly speaks about sexual immorality. The word in the Greek is porneia. Uh, it is a broad term. It includes really everything, all, any and all sexual activity that's outside of marriage between one man and one woman. It's, it's a broad, inclusive term that involves a lot of things. And, uh, you know, it's intellectually just really dishonest to say that Jesus just never talked about sex. He never talked about boundaries around sex. He never mentioned gender. He never said anything about what constitutes uh, sex according to God. He doesn't talk about marriage. He doesn't talk about boundaries. It's just not accurate at all. Uh, In Mark chapter 10, we have it on the screen uh, behind me. Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus spoke on boundaries. He spoke about sex. He talks about gender, and he talks about marriage and God's purpose for marriage. And he he holds up the sexual ethic of Genesis one And it's important that we understand that he does because when we see in Genesis 1, God saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We're supposed to understand that the eternal son of God is there saying those things, saying, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. When we see God saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, Christ is there speaking these very words into existence and creating what he speaks into existence. Uh, when we see in, in Genesis 2 that man, the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed, that's, that's Christ enabling and creating that scenario. So Christ creates sex both for procreation That's the multiply part. But also he created the enjoyment of sex. That's the fruitful part. That's the unashamed part. That's the part where they're together and enjoying one another. And there is no shame in all of that. The only time that shame ever comes in to the equation of sex that God creates as holy and good and right. And he designed it and created it. The only time it gets distorted is when everything gets distorted in Genesis 3. When the Satan shows up. Satan shows up in the garden in the form of a snake, and he tells them, God is holding out on you. I'm the authority on what is good, and God is stingy, and I know better, and trust me, and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, I don't want you to know evil. They eat of that tree. Suddenly their eyes are opened, and they know evil. We know what that feels like because we know 
when we also ate of the tree of the knowledge of evil, especially in this topic of sex, and our eyes were opened, and we suddenly knew shame and knew evil. That's where shame shows up, is when we've listened to the devil. But the Bible says over and over again that Christ himself is the authority on sexual pleasure and created the sexual, uh, created both sexual pleasure and the boundaries around it. Sometimes we think, well, God only shows up in the story when it's boundaries around it. It's kind of like, you know, God created sex only for procreation and something fell into the pot, like this thing about enjoyment, uh, the enjoyment and the pleasure part of sex sort of fell in, fell in there, and, uh, and so now God's got to reactively put boundaries around it. No, not at all. Christ himself is the authority on sexual pleasure, both the boundaries around it, yes, but the actual pleasure of it. And that's really important for us to understand because if we don't think that Christ is the authority on this topic, we will think something else is. Someone else or something else must be the authority on sexual pleasure if God is not the authority on sexual pleasure. So it must be Pornhub. That I'm told is the largest uh, internet porn site. Pornhub is not the authority on sexual pleasure. It's the authority perhaps on objectification, perhaps on human trafficking, for sure on shame, as all porn sites are, but it is not the authority on sexual pleasure. God is the authority on sexual pleasure. And if we don't believe that, we will, we will believe. Some of us are operating with a, a, a thinking and a mindset. There is, we can't go to God with our sexual pleasure because there's some other authorities out there that we need to consider and we're lured into. We're thinking that those things and those people know things better than God knows things. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And when we believe that, we're believing the lie of the thief who's coming to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he's the authority on the topic. So first, just consider that when we're talking about sex and Jesus talks about sex, he does so with the very authority of the fullness of God. He is fully God. Turn the prism again and let's be reminded that he also speaks as one who is fully human. Not half human and half God. That 50-50 makes 100 in some equations, but not in terms of the Son of God. He is fully God and fully human. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means all the deity of God dwells in the fullness of humanity. Well, how human was Jesus? Well, look at the slide behind me, and you'll see that over and over again we're told that Jesus uh, experienced the fullness of humanity. Jesus is seen as being weary many, many times throughout Scripture. He acknowledges his hunger. He acknowledges his thirst. He, he is fully expressive when he says that his soul is troubled. Many times it talks about how Jesus was troubled in his spirit the greek word there is terasso which is anxiety and sometimes it's the worst kind of anxiety some of you are going through a very anxious time of your life or you're suffering from anxiety and you're wondering does god know that does he can he relate to that yes he can relate to that he understands your particular anxiety because he experienced it himself jesus marveled 
Uh, Jesus wept multiple times in Scripture. And then we see things like he learned obedience. That almost sounds wrong. How does one who is fully God learn obedience as he is suffering through what he suffered? How does one who is fully God increase in wisdom? Well, that's talking about in his human wisdom and in his, the testing of his human nature. You'll remember that there's this story in Matthew 4 where after fasting for 40 days, Jesus is super hungry. That's what happens when you fast. You just, you're very, very hungry. Well, the tempter comes to him and says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil knows that Jesus has that power and that authority. Now, Jesus does do miraculous miracles in service to others to prove that he is the Messiah, that he is fully God. He does do those things over and over again to, to make it unmistakable that he is the Son of God. But the tempter is trying to get him to use his divine nature to resist human temptation, and Jesus will not take the bait. Wayne Grudem says, Jesus met every temptation to sin, not by his divine power, but on the strength of his human nature alone, which was not alone, it was depending on God the Father and the Holy Spirit at every moment. Now this is really good news for us because what that teaches us is that we have the exact same things available to us to resist temptation that Jesus had. Well, what did Jesus have? Well, when he speaks to the devil in that moment of temptation, he speaks the very words of God back. And he does so in the power of the Spirit of God. So he had the words of God. He had the Spirit of God. And he had the people of God. Friendship was very valuable to Jesus everywhere that he went. He would ask his disciples to pray with him as he was going through suffering and temptation. Because friendship was such a, a crucial uh, part of, of his resisting temptation. The words of God, the spirit of God, the people of God. And we have the very same thing that Jesus had and was available to him. The Apostle Paul says, no sexual temptation has seized you except what is common to man. He says that in 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the biggest tricks of the devil is to say, your particular sexual hang-up, your particular sexual past, your unique temptation is, is, is different than everybody else. And nobody else can relate to what you are going through. There are some here in this room, some joining us online, you are battling or suffering with same-sex attraction. Now, maybe that's something that you, you pursued and it, and it stirred something and now you're really dealing with it. And maybe you didn't pursue it at all. It's just something that fell in your lap. You never asked for that. It was just the cards that you were dealt. Some of you are struggling with gender dysphoria. Uh, that's, you, you don't feel like your gender matches who you are. And there's confusion and suffering. Some of you are struggling with a porn problem. Uh, some of you struggle with past guilt from a, from a sexual situation from your past. And you just carry the shame around. And you just like, how do I rid this shame from my life? How do I get rid of this? And, and, and how do I tell anybody about it? Because there's nobody that would in the world relate to me. And sometimes we bring that into the church and we think nobody in the church could possibly, could possibly connect with or understand exactly what I'm going through. Listen, everything. Every 
suffering and every temptation that we go through in this, in this area, is, there is an element of uniqueness to that. And I want to be clear that I don't want to just quickly dismiss or, or pass over your unique suffering or your unique temptation. But I also want to uphold the reality that you are not alone. Every temptation, every suffering is common. And it, it just doesn't take long in the ministry to realize that everybody's got a common past. We've all got a past. Why? Because we're sexual beings. We, we have sexual temptation and we are uh, prone to suffering and to temptation and to sin. And that means all of us have a past. We may not all share the same past. Certainly we don't. But we all have a past and we all have something that we are ashamed of and something that we thought or did that we uh, are ashamed of and we want out of that. We want out of that and we want a, a pathway out of that. Well, the pathway out of that is the same pathway Jesus took. It's God's word, it's God's spirit, it's God's people. It's not a, a catapult or you know, something that sometimes we wish there was just some springboard that just moves. Is, where's the secret? Is there some secret thing out there? There is not, nothing. It is bringing stuff to the light among friends in, in, a, in a context of trust and using God's word and, and trusting God's spirit and bringing things uh, to light uh, and stuff so that we can grab hold of the gospel. Well, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human. Let's turn the prism again and remember that Jesus never married. Jesus never married. You know... In the, in the church world and, uh, and even increasingly in the gay community, marriage is lifted up. And marriage in itself is an idol. Um, it's just lifted up as the ideal thing that you are somewhat incomplete unless you find that one person that, that connects with you, that's the perfect fit for you. Uh, your soulmate, you know, Uncle Rico told us all about, was that you need to find this soulmate. Some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you don't. Sorry about the Uncle Rico mention. Just needed to bring a little light into the room, a little open up a window, let some air come in. This is a lot, this is heavy, okay? Um, but, but marriage, man, it's lifted up as this, this thing that you're just incomplete without. And yet, Jesus, and throughout the New Testament, singleness and celibacy... While difficult, is an incredible gift used for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus taught. And you see over and over again how God has, has gifted people uniquely throughout church history, throughout the church today, and even people in the Bible. People like Joseph and Nehemiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and Ruth and John the Baptist, who Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote nearly all the New Testament, never married, single, and celibate. Paul went on to say, I wish that all were as myself am. It's, it's almost the reversal today. It's almost like marriage is, is viewed as the ultimate. Now, we can make idols out of both. Married people can make singleness an idol. Single people can make married marriage an idol. But both are a gift. And singleness is a gift, a gift of God. Paul's saying... It's a difficult gift, for sure, but it's a, a gift given to some, or some for a season, that gives you an undivided devotion to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7 says. And when we talk about sex 
it's important that we recognize that Jesus, being fully human, fully human, we just saw all those verses, lived, died, rose, and ascended, having never experienced a sexual partner or sexual partners. And that's lifted up in the culture. You've got to find this, this perfect sexual partner or perhaps outside of uh, the Christian world and in, the, uh, in other places, multiple partners. You need to find fulfillment through sex. So catch that. We just talked about how Jesus is fully God. He who created sex, he who created the pleasure of sex, never engaged in it. Sex did not complete Jesus, and sex does not complete us. Marriage did not complete Jesus. Marriage does not complete us. Marriage can be lifted up as an idol, as I've already said, but, but singleness can as well for married people. But both are a gift, and both are to be used for God's kingdom. We're told over and over in the Bible that no one can complete us like God. And we can't complete another person. Have you ever experienced that? You ever felt like you were the savior to somebody or somebody was looking to you to complete them or to save them or to fix them? That's a burden nobody can, can bear because only God is supposed to bear that. And so Jesus never married. There's an incredible implications to that. Let's, let's turn the prism and, and look at what that implication is. Fully God, fully human, never married, but Jesus was also totally fulfilled. Totally fulfilled. Lacking nothing. Jesus says in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full and overflowing. The reason he can say that is because everybody looked at Jesus and they said, that's an individual who's overflowing with incredible Joy. Nobody looked at Jesus and said, he is lacking in joy. They got close to him and were trying to discover the truth of how can I get that kind of joy, that kind of peace, that kind of fulfillment in my life. Jesus lacked nothing. He was filled up and overflowing with joy and it spilled over onto other people. There's this story of uh, this woman at the well. Some of you are familiar with this in John for, and she's just been in relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. And uh, Jesus, they're sitting at a well. And kind of metaphorically, there's, there's water in this well. And Jesus says, can I have a drink? And she's like, well, I'm a woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And so uh, he says, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for, li for living water. He says what he knows about her is that after relationship, after broken relationship and, and sexual experiences and everything else, she is still spiritually thirsty. And to this woman, Jesus offers his life-giving spirit. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, I'm going to put a spring in you through the Holy Spirit that's going to well up every time that you find yourself in need, welling up, drawing up and drawing into you through my life-giving spirit. It's going to be a, a well that will fulfill you in your thirstiest moments. 
And, uh, and listen, that is incredible good news for all of us. Listen, for singles, marriage doesn't complete you. And you don't need to think of it like that. If God calls you into marriage, then, then wonderful. It'll be a wonderful gift for you. It is a gift. Sex is a gift. Marriage is a gift. But it will not complete you. And sex, sex if, you're, if you're tempted to get somebody, you know, to marry you or to grow spiritually or something like that, sex can't make someone stay in a relationship with you. Sex can't make another person love you more or love God more for sure. Don't fall for that trick. Listen, to our gay friends, we need to say loud and clear with the compassion of Jesus, but with the authority of, of Christ, who is totally fulfilled as a single, that Christ offers something that's more intimate. Hear that. More intimate and more fulfilling as single Christian friends than a romantic or sexual relationship. I mean, I know just saying that, I mean, I'm just like, I'm just being, I might be canceled by somebody here today that I said that. But that's what Christ offers. Something that is even deeper than the connection that you're experiencing romantically or sexually. Or maybe perhaps that you're, you're tempted to, to believe that, that romance and sex with this individual that you're drawn to, that you have a connection with will fulfill you in a deeper way. That's the law. That's, a, that's going outside the boundaries that Jesus created in friendship. And there's a law of diminishing return there. That's not going to fulfill you. Jesus says there's something that's deeper, and he wants something deeper for you. In the, he wants something deeper in that relationship. Not, he doesn't want to take the relationship away. He wants to do something deeper and holier and, and, uh, and, and, and far more intimate through his Holy Spirit, through singleness and, and through not engaging in sex or romance. And listen, teenagers... Porn is not going to bring you joy. Some of you understand that. Some of you are still tempted to think that. But it is not, you, if you've looked at it, you realize, oh, it only brings shame. It does not bring joy. Uh, and it objectifies people in the process. And uh, teenager sex isn't going to fulfill you or the other person. It is not a pathway toward fulfillment. Christ has already shown us the pathway. It's through him and through his life-giving spirit. So listen, Jesus was totally fulfilled as a single, and he holds out a big vision uh, for, for singleness. Um, lastly, turn the prism one more time with me today, and remember that Jesus is the Savior to the broken, all brokenness. Jesus is the Savior to all brokenness. We are broken because we've broken God's law, not just sexually, but in all all. Always. Uh, but Jesus is the Savior of the broken. In Hebrews 4, we're given these words. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now stop there for just one second. Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. What that means is he is the one and only perfect high priest. A high priest is somebody who represents God to you and represents you to God. And because he's fully God and fully human and he's the perfect substitute on the cross for us and he rose from the dead, he is the perfect high priest for us. And that's what that is saying. He is the high priest who gets us. When you think nobody else in the room gets you or gets you on this topic, nobody quite understands my temptation or my suffering 
Jesus gets you. He understands you. He is able to sympathize with your weakness. Just consider that for a second. You don't even sympathize with your own weakness in this area, do you? But Jesus does. Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. He gets you through and through. He, get, he knows your failures. He knows your hang-ups. He knows your past. He knows your desires. We like to play this game that God, he doesn't know that. Like it's, that's in that box or something. Like it's tucked away. He doesn't really know all of us. Oh, he knows everything. We play this weird little game, but he knows us. He, and, but the good news is not only does he know us, he sympathizes with us. He who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's how he can both sympathize with us and help us in our weaknesses. And then we're told, let us then with confidence, listen to that word, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not hanging on to shame, not hanging on to embarrassment, not hanging on to, well, I've just got this hang up and Nobody gets it, and I don't know who to go with, so I'm just going to keep dragging this thing around. No, we can with confidence go to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, our high priest at the cross removed the penalty of sin, at sexual sin. He removed the penalty at the cross, and in his resurrection, he broke the power of sin. And what this this passage tells us is that he's alive right now, right this very second, able to sympathize with our weaknesses and help us overcome the remaining presence of sin and sexual sin until he returns. And so with this truth, we're to be reminded that we don't define ourselves by our sexual suffering. And many of us are, are, are tempted to define ourselves by how we've suffered sexually or our you know, how, we, how we suffer in terms of our desire or what, what we've experienced in the past or maybe something that's been done to us. We're not to define ourselves by our sexual temptations and we're not to define ourselves by our past. Well, how do we define ourselves? Well, uh, consider this. Yes, Paul speaks over and over again. He takes the same word that Jesus says about porneia. This is how we're closing. He says, he says, sexual morality is not to be named among you. So when he speaks to the Ephesian church, he says, listen, hey, all sexual immorality, and all impurity and covetousness not, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He says, listen, because you have a faithful high priest and because you're in Christ, you are a saint in light. And yes, you've been tempted. And yes, you've done stuff you shouldn't have done. And yes, you, you're tempted to make sex an idol. But that's not who you are. You're a saint in Christ. Put away sexual immorality and all that activity out, that's outside of marriage. Put it all away because you're a saint. That's how he starts the letter. That's how he ends the letter of Ephesians. That's repeated in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what's, it, what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, put it away based on what? Well, he starts the letter with to the saints and faithful brothers. You're a saint. Put it away. To, to Rome, he said, Let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. See how he marries ideas like jealousy and quarreling with like drunkenness and orgies and sexual immorality, like what? So, but he, he brings all of these ideas together and says, all of that, all of that is idolatry. He doesn't say, well, this is just really, really bad and this is just okay. 
This is kind of bad. He says, oh, it's all bad. And you're not to engage in any of it. You're not to walk in any of that stuff. Why? Well, he starts the letter of Romans. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Why do you not engage in that stuff? Because you're loved by God. You're loved by God. Hear that and bring it home to your heart. Listen, you are loved by God today. You are loved by God. Even with your sexual temptation and sins, you are loved by God. To the Corinthian church, the most sexually uh, messed up church in the Bible. I mean, I wouldn't start a letter like this. But this is how Paul, you know, there's, there's incest going on in this church in 1 Corinthians 5. And he says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. The kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. And so this church is just, it's messed up in this topic. And yet, Paul starts the letter saying, to those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Stop engaging in it. He says, flee from it because you are saints. Last thing I want you to look at up here on the screen behind me. This is how he closes the letter to the Corinthians. And this is how we're going to end our message. He says, look, look, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, I know that that's where the church likes to camp out on. But he goes on to say, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. He lists nine different kinds of sin there, okay? And he's putting it all together. What we like to do is look our nose down at other people and say, well, he's worse than I am. Or she's done stuff that I've not done, and so I'm better than that person. <laughs> You're not any better than anybody else. He lists nine things, and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's how he wants the Corinthians to walk out purity and holiness is to remember their identity in Christ. You're loved by God. You're a saint in light. You're washed. You are set apart. That's what sanctified means. You're justified. You're legally declared good. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus did at the cross and at the resurrection. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.